This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Icon family. It's good to be with you again as we walk through God's word, as we uh, answer some really tough questions. Uh, this time that we are living in, this, this normal, this new normal, I heard it called the now normal. Uh, we are really trying to uh, adjust and figure out what it is, uh, what does it mean to have hope in the midst of uncertainty and how do we cling to that? How do we cling not just to hope in the very general sense, but a very specific hope? How do we cling to hope in Jesus very specifically. And, uh, and so as we walk through this text and as we really uh, endeavor to figure that out, I want to start with this story. There, was, uh, there were two women who lived together, old women. Let's call them Dorothy and Blanche for a lot of our Golden Girls fans. And these women were living together for quite some time and uh, they decided to enjoy an evening together out on the porch. And so while they were sitting on the porch, there were lots of things happening in their little town. Uh, You could hear uh, the choir of the local church having a choir rehearsal at the time singing beautifully. You could also hear the sounds of the crickets chirping. And so one woman who's listening to the choir, she looks at the other woman and says, doesn't that sound just beautiful? And the other woman who's listening to the crickets said, yes. And I hear they do it by rubbing their legs together. Now, confusion like that makes for great jokes. Confusion like that makes for great stories. But sometimes confusion can lead to much graver consequences, earthly and spiritual. You, you could make the argument that sometimes confusion has very eternal consequences. And so what we find, even as we look at a story like that, this leads us into a very serious question. Right? Because you can be very confused when answering the questions that we've been bringing up now for the last few weeks and if you've been a part of our church for several years. Who is Jesus and what do we do with his claims? You see, the way we answer that leads to a lot of confusion. And as we look at our text today, we're going to notice a good deal of confusion and how that, uh, how that informs the way that we respond to, to confusion, the way we respond to uncertainty. And even in our time today, how do we respond if we're confused about who Jesus is? So my question is, even as we are dealing with this very huge time of uncertainty, as we are still figuring out what it means to live out our faith in the midst of the coronavirus and in the midst of responding to that, Who is Jesus to you right now? What do you do with his claims right now? Our text here is John uh, chapter seven. We've been moving through the book of John for the last few months. And so we are uh, now uh, chapter seven, verses 25, all the way through to to eight, verse one. And while we won't go through every single verse here, uh, there's some key things I want us to be able to point out, some key things I'd love for us to look at as relates to this idea of who Jesus is and what we do with his claim. So let me recap first. <clears throat> Let me recap first uh, based as we look through what we've already covered. We've already looked at how Jesus has been, uh, he's been over about a year, almost a year and a half of his ministry. And he's done incredible things. He's made incredible statements. He's done incredible miracles. And there were some people who loved what he was bringing. There were other people who were threatened by what he was doing. 
And so as a result, Jesus spent some time in uh, the northern region of Galilee. He knew he had to escape from people who were trying to kill him, who wanted to seize him, who, who sought ill will against him. And so he had spent time in Galilee, and now he's back. Uh, in the southern region of Judea, where Jerusalem is. And he's back for these, this incredible festival and Passover. And so he's coming. We talked about that last week when uh, he shows up in the temple and he starts teaching. And the things that he uh, begins to teach, they are very divisive. They're very confusing. And people don't know what to do with that information. And again, we talked a little bit about how there are things that we think we understand about Jesus. There are things that we believe we know about God based on either just religious construction that maybe we just created uh, on our own or other people created and we just kind of held on to those things. And, and, and or you've got folks who are just threatened by the authority that Jesus brings. And in either case, we're looking at serious confusion now. And so Jesus has come on the scene and he's teaching in this temple and he's very public now and folks don't know how to respond. And this is where we find ourselves in verse 25 of chapter seven. Here's what it says. Some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, well, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When this Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. And as he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I'm from, yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I'm from him and he sent me. And before we go on, it's interesting when you look at what, what John uh, the author of this book, what he's wanting to get across to us. He's been painting this picture for quite some time now, and we're going to see in John 20 eventually that he says the reasons why he, all the reasons why he wrote this book can be culminated in one thing, that we would believe in Jesus, that we would believe that he's truly been sent by God, that we would believe that he truly is the Messiah, that we would believe that he is truly God in the flesh. And so everything we're reading here is to really show us and convince us that Jesus really is who he claimed to be. And so these folks, if you, if you think about where, where these folks are, they came here to, to celebrate. They came here to party. They came here to recreate. They came here to get reconnected with family and friends. They didn't come here to have their world turned upside down. And maybe you felt that. If you just think about your everyday routine, all of us have a routine. All of us have a, a, a basic set of expectations. What I expect to happen today, what I expect to happen this week, what I, happen, what I believe will happen this year, even in my own life overall. What I never show up for is to have all of those expectations upended. I never show, I'm not here in order for the world that I know to be turned upside down. And I might even believe that it's God's job to maintain the way that I see things to maintain the world as I've constructed for myself. And so if you put yourself in the shoes of these folks, these are folks that are what you might call religious people. You see a few different terms referred to in this text. You see folks being referred to as the crowds. You see that uh, throughout the scriptures and the crowds, uh, very different from, uh, it's not particularly specific of a, of a designation, but you're looking at Jewish pilgrims who have come up to Jerusalem for this feast. So these are people from all over. Some of them don't know what's happening in Jerusalem politics. 
Some of them don't know what's happening uh, to Jesus. They may not even know necessarily that folks have been out to kill Jesus, but they're, they're there gathering just for that one time a year kind of reunion. And, but here in 25, there's a different designation. Some of the people of Jerusalem. So these are folks that understand the lay of the land. They know what happens in Jerusalem. They understand politically what's been going on. They understand the power dynamics that exist. And they say, after hearing what Jesus said, they say, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet look, he's speaking publicly and they're saying nothing to him. Can it be true that the authorities know he's the Messiah? You see, they're looking and they're going, wait, this guy's speaking. No one's taking him out right now. No one's stopping him. So maybe because he's speaking with this authority, maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he, he must be because if he, if he were not the Messiah, if he wasn't the Messiah, they would likely pull him down, right? Wouldn't they stop him? They wouldn't let him blaspheme here and make claims that, that can't, be, they can't be true. And then you've got uh, this, this major misunderstanding because you're looking at other people respond and go, okay, yeah, maybe that's true, but... But here's the problem. We know where he comes from. We, we know where Jesus is from. And we always thought that nobody would know where the Messiah is from. So this actually speaks to a, an even larger issue, right? Because listen, I don't care what your background is. We've all grown up with some type of an idea that we believed are true uh, about who God is, and who Jesus is, and what ought to happen when, how God should function, how God doesn't function. Some of those things, matter of fact, a lot of those things might be rooted in some type of a scripture, right? We might be able to, we, a lot of us have our go-tos, right? I, I believe this about God. Why? Because of this passage here. I believe this about Jesus because of this passage here. Now, whether or not those passages are contextually accurate, that's a different conversation. There are things that we believe about God based on scriptures that maybe we misunderstood. Well, this was the case here too. There were people who, uh, they, they were religious. They had close proximity to things about God without actually knowing or understanding or having relationship with God. And so most times you'll see, and we'll say this a lot, it's, there's a difference between doing things for God versus actually being with God. And Jesus is really pointing that out. And so when you look at all these, the people in Jerusalem, you see this crowd that's very confused about who Jesus is. You had some people saying he was a good man. You had some people saying that he led people astray. We saw that in verse 12 in, in chapter seven. You had some in this multitude that thought he must have had a demon because of the claims that he was making. These were claims that they had never heard before. They were claims that no one would ever make about themselves. And in response, Jesus told them, remember in verse 24, don't judge people according to the uh, appearance, but to judge with righteous judgment. So what John is showing us here is that uh, general confusion had resulted because of people's false judging. And, and these people had, they, it, this wasn't like people were just making things up out of thin air. It's almost scarier to have a false understanding of God based off of God's word because that actually gives you more confidence in things that are false. For, for people who are called, consider themselves religious, if as long as I have enough religious documentation to back up my claim, then I could actually be so confident in a lie. 
And this is where Jesus is. He's, got, he's around these people who are incredibly religious. They are, they're very close to religious things. They're close to things that look like outward worship, uh, but they are completely devoid from the real heart of God. And so they can't help but to have superficial judgment. They can't help but to have misinformation. They can't help then in turn for the religious leaders now, they can't help to not have open hostility. They can't help to not have this mocking unbelief. And so this is where we're seeing, when you look at 25, 26, 27, these folks are confused. They're, how in the world is this possible that this is the Messiah? Somehow, we don't know, there's a lot of theories. We don't know why, but there were people who just believed for whatever reason. There's some other things that were written that people think people kind of took to heart that said, well, we'll never know where the Messiah will be born. Even though if you look throughout the Old Testament, there are other prophecies that definitely show that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. But there were people who still believed, nope, we, we won't know. We've got these mysterious ideas about the Messiah. And so you look at uh, what happened. Jesus heard this. He hears people kind of believing or, or spouting their religious ideas about who the Messiah will be. And as he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out. And in the Greek, that word means like he actually took action to get the attention of the people. He, wasn't, he really wanted people to hear what he was saying. In other words, Jesus is saying, there are things that you might believe about me that are wrong and I want to get your attention because I want to correct it. Y'all, this is really important. Because it's something, we, it's something to believe that, that truth is something that we can all divine on our own. It's something to believe that there are multiple ways to get to the truth. Or there are multiple truths. And Jesus, anytime we start to have the wrong idea of who Jesus is, he seeks to correct that. It's never wrong to be corrected. It's never wrong to be humble enough to say, all the things that I believe about God, I need to always be open to correction. It doesn't mean that we're willing to just give up everything that's true, but it just means if there are things that aren't true, I need those corrected because it could lead me to grave confusion. It could lead me to grave consequences. And so you look at verses 28 and 29, as he was teaching in the temple, Jesus cried out, you know me and you know where I'm from, yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Think about just how, how bold this has to be. I mean, these folks are, again, they're here to party. They're here to relax. They're here to have a good time. They're here to see people. They're here to worship, quote unquote. What they're not here to do is to have somebody say, by the way, y'all don't know God. Can you just imagine how you would be prone to react Imagine just how insulting that would be. Those of us who've been in church almost all of our lives, maybe you've been in church for a little bit and you've grown a ton. Can you imagine somebody saying, based on what you're saying right now, the things that are coming, uh, coming out of your mouth are showing me that you don't know God. Are, are we humble enough to ex accept that? As a matter of fact, how, how about this? Um, are we in a place where when uncertain things rise, what comes out of our mouth starts to show whether or not we truly believe in Jesus, whether or not we truly believe in God? Are we humble enough to say, wow, the way I'm responding to this shows that I might be more faithless than I thought. How, how am I prone to respond to that? Am I prone to respond with anger, with hostility, with, with uh, a desire to kind of take that message out, to snuff out the messenger? 
This is where uh, some of these folks found it. And so if you look at what Jesus says, he says you, he kind of sarcastically mimics the words that they say. Yeah, you know me and you know where I'm from. Yet I've not come on my own, but the one who sent me is true. You don't know him. I know because I'm from him and he sent me. Now, they tried to seize him right after that, right? Why? Because those are, those are fighting words. Those are fighting words. He's, he's basically looking at them and saying, yeah, you guys, the best you can do is you know things about me. You know who my parents are. You know who my family is. You know my you know, city of origin. You know the low reputation we have, as we talked about last week. You know a lot of things about me, but you really don't know me and you definitely don't know God. That can be so insulting because wait a minute, these are folks who have been in the scriptures. They've been here every year to worship. They've heard sermon after sermon. They've heard teaching after teaching. They have quoted scripture much of their lives. How is it possible to quote scripture, to know all of this theology and still not know God? How dare you? You see, for a lot of us, we can fall into this trap of thinking that my belief in God is predicated upon how much I know about him versus whether or not I truly know and walk with him. Do I truly know and have real relationship with him? And I think Jesus is calling them and calling us out. Now, they're no different than we are. When people start to, in some ways, maybe even indict a part of your character or question your sincerity or question whether or not you know as much as you think that you know, we're prone to say, I don't want to be around that person. I'm going to cancel that person. I'd rather mute that person. I'd rather not be around them. We said this last week, right? That heart that refuses to be confronted in turn just refuses to be converted. Well, they tried to seize him. They thought we, we've got to take the, and usually this they uh, is, is likely more these religious leaders that have the authority to, to remove him. And yet no one laid a hand on him, verse 30, because his hour had not yet come. However, many from the crowd believed in him and said, well, when the Messiah comes, he won't perform more signs than this man has done, will he? Now, before we even go on, think about this. So we've got folks who start to believe, right? And this, this is uh, the, the tense for this particular verb, this believe, is this idea of they believe in the moment. This isn't necessarily a prevailing uh, uh, belief that is sustained. There's like a belief in the moment. We've all been there. There are things, here's the scary thing about belief in the moment. Belief in the moment is normally predicated on something good happening for us right now. So these folks, that's the reason why they, they reference miracles. They're like, you know, I believe. I believe right now. Why? Because I'm pretty sure that whatever Messiah comes won't possibly do more miracles than he's already done. Now that, that on the surface sounds good. On the surface, it sounds like, well, yeah, who doesn't want a, a Messiah that does miracles? Who doesn't want a Messiah that actually proves the power that he has? And those things aren't necessarily bad. But be very careful about only believing in God because of his miracles. Be very careful about, because here's what will happen. The time when a miracle doesn't happen, I start to doubt whether or not God is there. The time that, I, the time that a miracle uh, fails to come and be, mani- ma- be made manifest, immediately I'm going either A, what's wrong with my faith? Or B, why does not God love me enough to perform it again? I think it's, it's, it's really, really scary 
when we get to a place where God becomes only as good as the last miracle he performed. And we do that. We might be tempted to do that now. Listen, uh, uh, several of us, a lot of us have family, friends who've been impacted by this pandemic that we're in right now. And we don't have answers. We don't know why some of these things are happening. There are some folks who have just tried to come up with uh, some very artificial reasons. Sometimes we, 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 we want to rush to a reason too quickly and we start creating maybe some, we piece together maybe a possible silver lining reason. We don't know. We don't have real answers for that. We don't know kind of why certain things happen. We don't know why it affects some people a certain way and some people not at all. We don't know that. We don't know why certain people have been lost already. We, we don't get that. Here's the scary thing. When we have a faith that is constructed in such a way that says, God has to create a miracle here. God must miraculously protect people here. God must miraculously protect me. Otherwise, he's not God. We're confused. We've created a God based on miracles, not based on who he is or what he's promised. And this is where uh, these folks are looking and they, here's the thing, these folks are looking at Jesus and some of them are believing based on miracles. But guess what? In a matter of, of weeks, these very same people will be saying crucify him. This is what happens when Jesus, when God, anytime I look to my savior to ultimately be a miracle worker, that's the primary way that I view him as a miracle worker. Then when, then when a miracle doesn't happen, I, my heart will rebel against him. This is where these folks are. So they believe for a moment. They believe based on the miracles that he did. But later they won't believe. And the Pharisees heard those crowd. If we see in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about him. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent servants or uh, kind of temple guards to arrest him. And then Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time. Then I'm, gonna, I'm going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. These are bold claims. Now, no prophet talks this way. No teacher would talk this way. No rabbi would talk this way. Because to talk this way is to make a claim of yourself that goes beyond just being a normal human being. Again, if you don't believe that Jesus is making a claim about himself beyond just being a good teacher, a good man, a good rabbi, just a good moral agent, this, this, is, this proves that he clearly is making a claim beyond that. He says, I'm, I'm only with you for a short time and I'm, I'm going to the one who sent me. You're going to look for me, but you won't find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews, verse 35, said to one another, where does he intend to go so we won't find him? He doesn't intend to go to the, to, to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, does he? What is this remark he made? You will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, if you don't believe this, let me see. So often we look at Jesus as, and we're right in this. Jesus is this ultimate uniter. And he does, right? When we think about what he has done on Calvary, and we think about the fact that he is completely uh, lowered uh, any of the hostilities that we have is because of the sin nature that lies within us. And he has completely eradicated that. And because of that, it's the ultimate unifier. It's the ultimate leveler, right? And, and that's all true. But we have to know that there are things that Jesus says that are very divisive. There are things that Jesus says 
that, that will divide because they, they, they attack things that we believe very strongly about ourselves and about our world. And so for Jesus to make this claim, to make this claim about himself, in many ways, it, it exalts him to something that they weren't prepared to see in him. And so that's when they're like, how could he make a remark like this? You will look for me and not find me. Who, who is he? How did, so you've got some of these leaders, some of these folks who are feeling very threatened, right? Because there's some sense, uh, I, I saw a, a recent poll done a couple of years ago where they asked adults, young adults between 18 and 35, what is the greatest virtue? And you would think that folks would respond by saying uh, love, selflessness, time, but actually the number one response that was given in this particular uh, questioning was autonomy. The number one virtue was autonomy. There's this sense that as long as I feel like I have moral agency and I have control over my life and I have control over my decisions, that's the most important thing for me. And so, and, and, and these folks were no different. Having their, that challenged was a major thing. It really hit on a major part of their, of their hearts. And so that's the reason why when they're listening to Jesus say, uh, the things that you want to do, if you wanted to find me, you couldn't. Your greatest power, your greatest knowledge, what you think you know about me, what you think you know about God, you'll never know this on your own. When you look at the way that Jesus responds then, you see the way that, uh, that, that people uh, take his response when they start hearing the words that he says. These are very, very hard words to hear, but it doesn't end there. You look at verse 37, on the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out that same language again. I want people to hear this. I want their attention. He makes another claim, something that proves his power and lowers their autonomy and lowers their authority and shows authority is only in one place. He stood up and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the spirit for the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Y'all, if this is now getting very serious because if it wasn't serious before and you didn't get it, this is an extremely exclusive claim here. And we're gonna see him make a similar claim in John 14 when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, right? This is going to be, Jesus is bringing things very exclusive. He's really showing them all of these other ways you think you can get to God, it's not possible outside of me. And so when he says on this, here's this important day of the festival. So, so, so everyone's there. People are there. This is, the, this is the finale. This is like if you're at, uh, if, you know, if, if, if you're at um, Disney World, back when they were open, if you're at Disney World and, and, and it's the last day of the fireworks, everybody wants to be there for the fireworks. Everybody wants to be there for the final ceremony. And people are there and Jesus waits for all of these folks to be there. And he says, 
if anyone is thirsty. Now, the reason why he probably led with if anyone is thirsty is because scholars tell us that on the very last day, that was the day when people would have this big kind of water drink offering. It was a way of pouring out water to remember how desperate they were for rain for the harvest. As we talked about before, this happened at the end of the harvest. So they were being worshipful over the bountiful reaping that they had had because of this harvest. And that was their way of going, we're remembering that we're dependent on you for our water. We're dependent on you for, for, for what we need in order for our crops to grow and what we're dependent on you for what we need in order to live. And so these folks are waiting for this big part of the ceremony for the water. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. You're not just going to find your, what you need in these religious ceremonies that have been created. You're not going to find ultimately what will sustain you based on these ideas that we've created about who God must be. And so when he says this, uh, the scripture says that he was uh, talking about the spirit and what is, he, what is he referring to? Now we don't see, we really start to see this in the book of Acts, but uh, really quickly, if, if you remember, the Holy Spirit didn't really dwell in mankind as a whole. He would rest on men. He would rest on men and women who were doing uh, the, the word, the, the will of God. So when you look throughout the Old Testament, you would see times where God would use a certain person and anoint. We use that word kind of loosely now, but it was a very specific meaning. He would anoint and choose and his spirit would rest on top of this person. And you saw this with uh, King Saul. And then when he rebelled and turned away from God, God took his spirit away from him. That's why you see in Psalm David saying things like, cast me not away from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me, right? And we see in Acts chapter two, that's the first time that the Holy Spirit would dwell in believers once and for all. So by the way, if you are a believer, everybody's anointed by the way. And so they're waiting now Right? They're, they're waiting to hear. They're listening to Jesus. And he says, uh, if you are thirsty, you're, I know that you're waiting for something to satiate a deep thirst beyond just a normal human thirst. I know that there's something else that's making you want to hold on. Listen, what, what do we hold on to when everything around us, when our eyes tell us that those things are failing us? What do we hold on to when the things that I've been trusting in, when, when, when my very health is now threatened? What do I hold on to when my loved ones could face certain danger? What do do I hold on to? There's got to be something deeper. There's got to be a deeper well from which to drink that can sustain me. We're not saying that will erase my concerns, but give me what I need to endure while having those concerns. What do I hold on to? Jesus says, whoever believes in me, they're going to have that stream of living water flow from deep within them. Now, when uh, you look at verse 40, when some from the crowd heard these words, they said, this truly is the prophet. Because you had people who were believing that either Moses or Elijah would return. uh, And and maybe this is uh, because, again, they had their scriptures, but didn't quite understand exactly what they meant. And so they did what we often do. They filled in blanks and saying, oh, it must mean this. And now, since I've determined it must mean this, this is now how I will live. This is how my faith will play itself out. And so they, they, the, the people who had believed in, or the people who were believing, they were believing that maybe he must be the, the prophet. Then others said, this must be the Messiah. Then you had others that were saying, no, this can't be. Surely the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee, does he? I mean, doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from, uh, from the town of Bethlehem where David lived? So you had some people who you just heard earlier, they were like, nobody can know where the Messiah is from. 
Then you've got people here who clearly know that there are passages that do. Y'all, this is very similar. The church is no different, right? As believers, there are, this is why it's so important that we are in community with each other because there might be something you believe or there might be something that I believe, something I may have recited for years, for decades as true. And it's not until I get into a community of other believers that maybe can challenge and say, wait, you're holding on to that thing, but you, knew that, you do know that biblically this right here is actually true. You do know that there might be something that you believe that might actually not be accurate. This is one of the hardest things, especially if, we've, if you've been a believer for a really long time. Because when you hear new news or you hear something new that challenges something that you confident, confidently believed, was true. How do you respond? This is where these people were. They've got all this confusion, right? Wait a minute. I thought that uh, this would be the prophet. I thought this would be the Messiah. Uh, I thought the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem where David lived. And verse 43 shows us something. So the crowd was divided because of him. Jesus is divisive. Truth is divisive. It's not enough to just be, we've said this before, you can be united in the wrong thing and divided over the right thing. And truth is something that should divide. It should at some point. It should divide us on a very deep level. There should be something within us that goes, man, that truth is offending something I believed was true before. And it's causing real division within me. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And you get to verse 45, and this is when you remember they had sent these temple guards. This uh, translation calls them servants. You had these temple guards, temple kind of police, and uh, they had been sent to go arrest Jesus, to put their hands and seize him. And so you verse 45, then the servants came to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him? And the servants answered, no man ever spoke like this. There's something about this part of the story that really got my attention. Because if you remember the ways that people were expecting the Messiah to come, they either were expecting him to come like a bolt of lightning, like the prophets, or they're expecting him to come like a king, like David or Saul. They were expecting this thing to come. He doesn't come with any kind of grandiose demonstration of his power outside of just speaking his word. That's it. The thing that caused these strong, well-trained temple guards, the thing that caused them to not even seize Jesus wasn't because of some power that he displayed. It was the, it was the very word of God that stopped them in their tracks. It's interesting because you realize Jesus didn't come here for a popularity contest. He didn't come here just because the, the external things are the things that makes us popular. Right When you've got folks who are like, I've got this big thing I'm able to do, the spiritual gift that I have, this thing that I can do that's going to really wow you and impress you. Because you see, if what I do impresses you, then you'll believe in, in God. But that's why Jesus said, blessed are those who don't need a sign. And so you've got these folks who are going, we, we, we didn't touch him. The, 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 the way that he spoke, no man ever spoke like this. Now, we don't know the degree to their belief. But what we do know is that there was something about the way Jesus spoke and the words that he used that made them think there's something more than just a man here. And so they didn't. And then think about how the Pharisees responded. See, the Pharisees responded the way we're prone to respond when our own authority is challenged. And so they, uh, they, they looked at them and they said, oh, are, are you fooled too? 
Have any of the rulers, the Pharisees uh, believed in him? So that's the way of going, oh no, you've been affected. You've been infected by this thing. Who else has been affected by this? Narc on them. Get, you know, go, go ahead and be a, be a snitch, as they say. Tell us who else has uh, started to believe this because we've got to get rid of them as well before this thing spreads uh, even further. And then and, uh, the, the, the scripture says in verse 49, uh, but this crowd which doesn't know the law is accursed. Now it's interesting in verse 50, look who shows up. Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously and who was one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? Now, if you remember, Nicodemus was the one who came earlier in this book, showed up uh, to visit Jesus uh, quietly, very secretly, right? He was uh, a part of this, uh, this, this high level group of Jewish leaders and uh, Nicodemus was someone who didn't want to be seen with Jesus during the day. Probably now we know why. Had he been seen with Jesus before, what might these other Pharisees have done? And so he showed up in fear and he showed up listening to Jesus and we, don't, we didn't really know what he, had, uh, what he did with that information and we're seeing now he at least is giving a little moderate defense for Jesus. He at least is saying, hey, before you go do something to him, um, we, don't, we don't judge a man before we hear from him. Let's at least hear what he has to say. Let's at least kind of see, wait and see and, and before we act too rashly and look at how they respond. They respond the way anyone who has their authority challenged. You aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied. Investigate and you will see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Think about how we are prone when our authority is challenged. Because of our confusion, we believe that we have more authority than we do. Because of our confusion, we believe that Jesus doesn't have as much authority as he does, all of it. And so the moment someone begins to uh, say that to us, we're more like the Pharisees than we give ourselves credit for. You see, the Pharisees looked at uh, uh, Nicodemus and they looked at some of the things. He didn't even fully question everything about them. He just said, hey, the approach you're getting ready to take, do you think that's the right approach? And how were they prone to respond? They did what's known as kind of the ad hominem attack, right? I don't want to weigh the veracity of your claims, so I'd rather start kind of pointing uh, some bad things about you. Yeah, I may not like what you're saying. You see this sometimes leaders, sometimes political leaders all over the world will look at uh, maybe a journalist who's saying something they don't like. And so instead of weighing the claims of the journalist, they'll look and go, you know, you, you probably, you, you, you got fired before, didn't you? Yeah, I, I don't really want to hear what you have to say right now. You know, you, you, you always bring up things that feel negative. You always bring up things that I just don't really like to have to respond to. So I'm going to overlook you right now. See, this is what happens when you don't know how to weigh the veracity of a claim. Then you start indicting the character of the person that's asking the question. And so they did that to Jesus and they do that to anyone that follows. This is where we have to ask ourselves the same question that we started with. Who is Jesus? And what do I do with his claims? You see, if Jesus really does have all the authority, then it will cause some real division within me. If Jesus really does have the authority, I think if anyone is honest about their heart and they're honest about the way that they live their life, if you become a believer, when you became a believer, while you live as a believer, there are constant things that are challenging you. 
There are constant things that are challenging your idea of autonomy, your idea of authority, constant things that are actually challenging you about what you thought God was like. The whole Christian walk is being reminded and taught and, and, and uh, deprogrammed from really faulty ways of viewing God and faulty ways from viewing Jesus. We see that right now. We see even as we live in the world that we're in, we see that there are churches uh, that are still fighting to be able to gather, even though we see all of the wisdom coming out to say that we need to be very careful, not out of fear, but out of a genuine concern for our neighbor. And yet there are people that are saying, nope, the God that I serve won't allow any type of disease to come near. One of the most dangerous things about that is that those people have no answer for those who have gotten sick. Those people have no answer for those who have lost loved ones because they have this kind of Pollyanna uh, um, um, false understanding of who God is. And then they try to push that false understanding on other people and people are hurting and people are dying. So if that's our view, if that happens to be your view, if that happens to be uh, any of our views, what do we do with that? What do we say about that? How do we respond? If someone comes and says, hey, the way that you're viewing God right now, it's actually not accurate. The way that you're viewing God right now could actually be hurtful for someone else. What kind of humility do we have to respond? It's funny when we look at confusion, as we said, it's funny when people are confused about uh, a church choir making music by rubbing their legs. But it's really tragic when someone is confused about Jesus and rejects the very testimony of who he is. We just don't have that luxury. And so I close with this. When you think about who Jesus is, how does that give you hope where we are right now? Does Jesus have full authority? According to Jesus, we don't even see God if we don't see him with real authority. And it's an interesting kind of circular connection because he also says that we can't possibly see Christ or know Christ if we don't know God. So there's a unity there. There's a unity that we have to see. So how, what, what do you hold to right now? This idea that Jesus is very much the son of God and God in the flesh. When we think about where we are, and we think about this, this very uncertain time, this very concerning time that we're in, we have to go back to what we call this full picture of the gospel. Here's what we believe in, in, in really four stages of the gospel. We believe as believers, we believe that the earth was created perfect. We were created for perfect relationship with God and perfect relationship with each other and perfect relationship uh, to all creation. Everything was meant to work harmoniously. But when we moved from creation, very, very shortly after that, we moved right into this place called the fall. And when we rebelled against God, those three primary relationships were marred. Our relationship to God marred. So now what does that mean? Confusion about who God is. False belief about who God is. False understanding. So because I don't quite understand him the way I was meant to, I start making up things about him. Things that feel more palatable to me. See, the fall affected the way I see, the way I think, the way I hear. Then it affected the relationship with other people. So now I don't see other people the way that I should. So in a situation like this, what the fall might look like is, 
I, uh, Jen has talked about this before. We've talked about this. I'm so focused on self-protection that I don't know what it is to love my neighbor anymore. That's a function of sin. That's a function of that relationship being broken. When you think about creation, the reason why creation groans waiting for the return of Christ, the reason why we see pestilence, diseases, uh, hurricanes, all of these things that we see are a function of the fall. I'm not saying some specific sin that brought it about like some would say. What we're saying is that the world doesn't function the way it was meant to because something is fundamentally broken. Something is fundamentally wrong. And so if we left there, that'd be it. We would be hopeless. But then we move to this next place, this place of redemption, this place where Jesus breaks into time and space and history and says, I've come to make all things new. And he inaugurated this kingdom by coming, living this perfect life, living this life that was worthy of a true sacrifice. The scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, no remission of sin. And so you see Jesus in this place, living this life, perfect, dying this death, a death we would never be able to die on our own. One that would never satisfy the wrath of God. And he dies, but he doesn't just end there. And this is where our hope comes in. Because if he just died, that would be, that would be, it would be a nice story, but there would be no power in that. But in resurrecting, the very thing we're looking forward to next week as we, get, uh, as we move into Easter, what Jesus is saying is that I have risen with all power, all authority over death, hell, the grave. And because I have risen, you will rise too. And not only that, but he says in Revelation, I have come to make all things new. This is authority. What we believe about Jesus matters. It matters more now than ever. If he has the authority to make all things new, that means maybe not right now, which means I've got to mourn the things that are broken with hope, as Paul says. And I mourn with hope, but, I, but that hope says that Jesus is coming. And when he returns, these, this pain, this sorrow that we have will be no more. There will be no more virus. There will be no more murder. There will be no more hurricane. There will be no more brokenness. The relationship with God restored. The relationship with each other restored. The relationship with creation restored. That's our hope. Who is Jesus? And what do you do with his claim? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. God, thank you that even in the midst of uncertainty, even in the midst of fear, even in the midst of unbelief, even in the midst of our confusion, you love us while we were yet sinners. You rescued us while we were yet sinners. You continue to rescue us in the midst of our sins. So God, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would give us uh, a true understanding, a true view of who you are. God, there are places in our hearts, places in my heart where there are things I believe about you that might be wrong, that are false. God, will you arrest those parts of our hearts? Will you uh, shatter those things, break those things down and give us who you truly are? God, we want to serve, worship, and be with the God that is, not the God that we want to exist. And God, I pray also that you would uh, give us a deep hope, a deep longing, a deep expectancy. And while we, you don't promise to make us happy all the time, 
you promise to have joy. You tell us to count it all joy when these diverse trials and diverse tribulations and diverse temptations come. God, we are in diverse tribulation right now. So God, give us the ability to fight and strive for abiding joy, the joy that can only be rooted in your life, your death, and your resurrection, not for just our happiness, but for your glory. And we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.